I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Today with us is Hugh Hewitt, the renowned broadcast journalist, radio host, lawyer, professor. His radio show is one of the most popular in America. It is syndicated across 120 cities and reaches an estimated 2 million people a week. Hugh has been called the most influential conservative you ever or maybe never heard of. He provides commentary on Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and writes for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times. He has a weekly column for The Hill and The Washington Examiner. Uh, He's written numerous books, including two New York Times bestsellers, hosted series on PBS, and manages his own very popular daily blog. He began his career as a uh, ghostwriter for Richard Nixon, then served in a variety of posts under Ronald Reagan. Hugh, we are absolutely uh, excited and delighted to have you with us here today. After, you know, kind of going through your uh, resume and what you do, what do you do in your spare time? (laughs) Well, I do say I stay stay busy. David Axelrod once called me Zelig because I've kind of shown up in the right places at all the right time as an observer of history. Bob, thank you for having me. Great to be at CSIS and to be with you and Andrew. Great fun. Uh, Well, let's just start right in on uh, topic A, this election. The three debates are over. According to most polls, it looks like that uh, Hillary Clinton is increasing her lead. Uh, Trump, as well, is continuing to be Trump. Uh, I am not one of those who thinks the election is over, uh, though. Um, I think the path for uh, Donald Trump is getting uh, narrower and narrower. But uh, what are your general observations at this point? John Heilman and I from Bloomberg had a discussion last night, and I uh, pointed out that I understand the real clear politics average is 6.2 plus to Secretary Clinton, and that some, like the New York Times analysts, have Donald Trump at an 8% chance of, of winning. And it was pointed out on, on a blog today that that's equivalent to missing a 27-yard field goal in the NFL. And I pointed out that the Browns, in fact, missed a 27-yard field goal against the Dolphins two weeks ago, and that, therefore, keep your eye on that spot. Uh, It is very difficult to see Mr. Trump winning, but it has been a volatile year, as you know. Uh, There have been other volatile years. And, in fact, Bob, I always turn interviews around, so I'm going to ask you because I don't remember it as well as you will. It was my first presidential campaign, 1976. I was running around Massachusetts with Gerald Ford signs in charge of their state youth effort, which was was a completely doomed effort. But Ford closed every day, I think, for the last three weeks and always said if it would be a week longer, he'd have won. Now, I expect that we had peak Hillary. We're talking on the day after the Alfred Smith dinner, which was a bad patch for Mr. Trump, again, after a bad debate, uh, only because he knocked himself out on the Accepting the results of the election, I thought otherwise he won 14 out of 15 rounds on points. But um, he, it's at peak Hillary. And I expect now Republicans will come home. The chamber is up with ads. There are a lot of third-party groups out trying to save the Senate. 
and the residual effect will be that a strong Toomey campaign will bring him close in Pennsylvania, a strong Portman campaign will probably win him Ohio, a strong Rubio campaign may get him over the top in Florida, a strong Richard Burr campaign in North Carolina. And so it's a very strange year that I see a Ford-like close, but driven by the undercard being strong as opposed to the president having coattails. So you think there is actually a chance? There's a hope. It is. I think it's more than 10 percent. I think if you ran this election sequence the next uh, uh, 17 days, 20 times, he would win not two, but three or four times. And and so things have to break his way. And these WikiLeaks, and, and I want to be clear, it's a Russian intelligence operation run by the FSB against Sec- Secretary Clinton. And so we have to be seriously concerned with the cyber attack in the United States. But journalists don't turn their eyes away from material. They're very damaging to her. And the Obamacare premium hikes, which are rolling out, I did some research last night. In the state of Pennsylvania, 450,000 people are on the exchange. They face premium increases that average 20%. Now, that meant one listener last night sent me a note. My son has to pay $500 more a month, $6,000 a year. And if you're making $600,000 a year, you're not going to blink. And if you're making $60,000 a year, you're going to say, that's 10% of my income. So I expect Obamacare will have some significant impact on turnout, on anger versus the uh, secretary. And President Obama, who was out on the trail today in an unusual way, made a joke. It was a joke, but it won the Republicans to pick up saying, you know, if your cell phone doesn't work and you've got some glitches, you fix them. Unless it's the Android Galaxy 7, in which case you throw it away and it blows up. And a lot of people said, are you talking about Obamacare being the Android 7? And so it was, you can step in it. You never know. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You did suggest uh, that it would have been better had he stepped down. I wanted him to withdraw. I still think he could withdraw and Mike Pence could win after the video arrived. And I had been out campaigning for him. I, I've had an up and down relationship. I was neutral. I was trying to do the Bob Schieffer thing through all those debates right through the last debate because I did four debates this year. And you know from having three, done three big stage debates and even the little stage debates, the primary debates, you have to be fair to everyone. You have to ask. And so I didn't declare for anyone or against anyone. At the end of that, they were down to two or three. I guess the last debate was Rubio, Kasich, Cruz, and Trump were the last four guys standing. And uh, I didn't declare for anyone. I waited. I'm a California voter, so I didn't have to decide until June. And then Donald Trump locked it up in May, so I'll support the nominee. When he got in trouble with Judge Curiel, I almost pulled my support, but he backed away from that. Uh, Ceased and desist, as we say in the law. And uh, so I got back on the on the effort to, as I have, the Republican nominee ever. Uh, but after the videotape came out, I thought it would be in the best interest of the country, the party, his family, and himself to withdraw. And as with all of my advice this cycle, it was just not taken. <laughs> Why do you think he is wound up where he is right now? Is it Can he simply not control himself? I've had nothing but wonderful exchanges with him, Bob Schieffer. Nothing but wonderful talks with him. Uh, he gets mad at me on the air, between breaks in a debate, but but he's a very cyclical fellow in regards to his personal relationships with journalists. They're up and down. Chuck Todd and I joke about this. I've got a couple of Trump tattoos here. I wear them with pride when he gets mad at you, but I nevertheless feel as though he doesn't hold grudges, but he lives in a very different world than I have lived in, and that any political actor, as you mentioned, I started my career with Richard Nixon and David Eisenhower out in San Clemente, first with David, then with RN, 
And so I've been around a lot of political people for a long time. He's unlike anything I've ever been. He's not a, polit he's not a political character. He's mercurial. And mercurial people are maybe probably not cut out for politics. You have to be predictable, not mercurial. Well, I mean, I'm thinking about the Al Smith dinner. I mean, it, as I've watched him on television, it made me wonder, had he never been to that dinner? Did he not kind of understand what that dinner is about? I mean, it's very much like the gridiron here in Washington or the alfalfa club. People get up, they make jokes about themselves. Uh, uh, they, as they say at the gridiron, they try to singe, not not burn. Uh, I wonder, did he not un understand what he had stepped into when he got up to that podium? It's a great question because I've never been to any of these dinners. I've never gone to a correspondence dinner, to alfalfa, out to the Grove. I'm not one of those kind of people that enjoy that, but I know about them, and I always watch the Alfred Smith dinner toasts. In fact, last night after that debacle, I went back and read Richard Nixon's 1960 toast when Jack Kennedy was sitting on the other side of Cardinal Spellman. And what did Richard Nixon do in 1960? He made fun of himself, of his poor debate performance, of looking like Sal the Barber Maglia uh, for having not <laughs> shaved. And then he said, and religion will have no role in this race, using the occasion to make a public-spirited declaration in the defense of his opponent with whom he'd had a long-standing relationship. It was sort of a classic Al Smith dinner moment. Mitt Romney, appearing in White Tie and Tails, and I don't own those, uh, made a joke about it's so good to be able to relax in the clothes that Ann and I usually wear. You, know, that, that, you, you joke. And I thought to myself as a ghostwriter for a few years, I could have written him an Al Smith dinner speech in about 10 minutes. Well, Cardinal Dolan, I wanted to come here to talk to you about St. Patrick's. A little small, not so good. We could make that bigger. We could, not so big, not as high as you go, but bigger. And the wine. I, now I'm a Presbyterian. We don't have to go much. Haven't been in a while. I know you go every week. But the wine. I went back. I got one of your monsignors. We got some of the non-consecrated wine, none of the good stuff. We got the, I said, Trump wine would be better. You could do that. It's so easy to do. But to be angry is not Al Smith. He has now begun talking about these international conspiracies. And, and and let me just say here up front, because I'm always comfortable when they finally get back and blame it all on the media. I mean, we, you know, that's, <laughs> I've been doing that that's our, that's, that's where we are. All right. It's always the fault of the media uh, in the eye of the, uh, of the losing person. But I must say uh, to be a member of the media and to be connected to some sort of international conspiracy with international bankers, this is a new place for me. Yeah. And, and, I mean, he has come up with these conspiracies that seem to involve everyone except Putin. It's kind of, maybe that's, maybe that's his conspiracy, everyone but Putin. Where does all that come from? Well, I, I believe Mr. Trump has tapped into an enormously uh, potent force in American history, American populism. Richard Hofstetter called it the paranoid impulse in American politics, but I think it's just actually basic populism. Nobody hears me. Nobody cares about me. Donald Trump arrives, and though he's a billionaire and builds these enormously successful hotels and buildings, he understands the little guy because he's around working men, working men and women. That's what I think the basic mindset is. As his campaign has not prospered post-May, he's gone about looking for why is that? And his a developer, and I'm, I'm a lawyer, Bob, and I've been representing developers for 35 years at the same time I've been doing journalism. They're all the same. 
They're single-minded, they're driven to a den, and if they don't get the density they want or they can't build their project, they blame somebody. It's the lawyer, it's the city council, it's the city manager, it's the engineer. Somebody gets blamed. That's the developer way. So who is he going to blame? He's not going to blame Putin because everybody wants him to blame Putin. And that's not the developer way. So he's going to blame, unfortunately, there are some folks in, in our business who live out on the fringes of the uh, theory of how things work. And it's, it's hard to maintain. I've been living in California for 30 years, so I'm not really of the beltway anymore. But I was here with Reagan. And it takes about a day in the White House to realize you can't run a conspiracy in Washington, D.C. because nothing's organized. And you can't really. Chuck Colson used to say, we tried to cover up Watergate and it lasted 48 hours. And so you can't really do it. He needs something, a narrative. There are some people with narratives that are off the shelf that fit into his um, developer mentality of not blaming their own structure. Somebody else, and, and it turns out to be the media, but like you just said, that's an old song. That's been sung a lot of times. And, and if you played the cover tune every night at the wedding, you need something else. And so you come up with a new song, and it's <laughs> international. Let's talk about a couple of things. Let's, let's look beyond the election and talk about first, what if he wins? What does that mean for the Republican Party? Does oh. that mean the Trump Party has won and, or has the Republican Party won? I'm a Republican, have been my whole life, I've never voted for a Democrat. In fact, my grandfather lived to be 101 with an FDR Democrat and a fireman, so he, I got to live to 101 and only vote for Republicans to even that score. So I, I know the Republican Party deep, uh, known most of the leaders of them, uh, and worked for Reagan, worked with Nixon, admired W. W. had us back on the last Wednesday of his presidency. So I, I know Republicans, and Mr. Trump is an unusual sort of Republican. I believe the leaders of the party are Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. I believe they represent the enduring free market, strong defense, religious liberty, triple leg stool, and that they will reemerge, despite polls showing that uh, more than a majority of Americans say, of Republicans right now, say Donald Trump is the leader. He's certainly the nominee. But once you lose, if you lose, Mitt Romney famously said, and I have enormous respect and friendship with Governor Romney, uh, they put a big L on your forehead and you're out of the game. And so he said, I can't run again because you know, I want him to run again. And one of his comments in public was, you know, you're wearing that L. And I'm making the hand sign here on radio. I remember to do that and explain what I'm doing. On your forehead, you can't run again. You want to show the loser. And once Donald Trump is the loser, the grip on the party slips. Doesn't mean he won't have his support. It will be strong, adamant, animated, passionate among 10 to 15 percent of the population, from which he might build a media empire in an enduring vein of influence but the party will revert to being the party of Ryan and McConnell. And I noted that Mark Meadows of North Carolina said he was going to mount a challenge. He was thinking about mounting a challenge against Speaker Ryan. I hope so. It'd be nice to bat that down. Tim Hillscamp is retired because they went after Paul Ryan. And the Freedom Caucus is full of people like uh, uh, Jim Jordan is great Ohio man. I'm an Ohio man. And Jim Jordan is sane. And the Freedom Caucus knows that Paul Ryan is the best thing to happen to the House of Representatives on the Republican side ever. So I, I guess then I want to bring Andrew into this. But so you're, what you sense is that win or lose, the Republican Party uh, will survive. You don't see it coming apart. You don't see it breaking in two. No, because I, I, my first election was 1974 as a freshman at Harvard. 
I got on a bus and I went out and worked for a guy named Paul Cronin, who you may or may not remember. He didn't last year very long. He lost to a young Democrat from Massachusetts by the name of Zongus, Paul Zongus. And it was the Watergate baby year where the Republicans were wiped out. It was a big, what we would call blue wave now. Back then we didn't have blue and red. And the Republicans were just decimated in the aftermath of Nixon resignation and the Ford pardon. Decimated. They bounced back to competitiveness by 76. They won by 80. Uh, then they won the House in 94, and then they got shellacked uh, by Bill Clinton in 96. And, and uh, then they won in 2000 narrowly. Some would say they didn't win, that Bush was selected, not elected. Uh, they won in 2002. They won in 2004. They had bad cycles in, in 06 and 08. They had great cycles in 10 and 14, close cycle in, in 08. You know, it's, it's a cyclical thing because American politics is fundamentally center-right, and I believe that it will remain center-right for a long time, and the collapse of Obamacare is actually accelerating that pendulum back. Mr. Trump is an interesting aberration. William Jennings Bryan was the same aberration. Father Coughlin was the same aberration. Not their politics, not their, <clears throat> excuse me, agendas, but their populist giving a voice to people who are voiceless, the forgotten man. Andrew. Thank you, Bob. Um, Hugh, one th I'd like to talk a little bit about building audiences and mass, communi uh, mass communication in today's media age. But, but before I, I ask a, a more general question, I want to ask a specific question about Trump. Trump really knows something about building mass audiences. He's built a tremendous brand. He was tremendously popular on TV. He's liked by, he was liked before this election by a cross-section of people. Why didn't he run as that guy? Uh, he may not have understood the number of landmines that lie outside the guardrails of American politics. Uh, I don't know. We'll be studying this for a long time. I've spent five hours in conversation with him. I'm posting them all over at hughhewitt.com now because people are interested. They want the quotes. And I said, I'll just post all the tapes in one place. You listen. I'm not going to listen to them. I'm not going to index them. But that's 15 interviews on the radio, four debates. I've spent a lot of time talking to him as a journalist, not as a friend. I've never met him in Trump Tower. I've never done a social meeting with him. Some journalists have played golf with him and tell me he's such a wonderful guy on the golf course. He built a, an enormous brand on the basis of publicity that was earned in any form at any time, no matter what the subject matter was. A rule that will work well in almost any branding exercise, unless you're CSIS or uh, a major media network or a presidential candidate. Then you have to stay inside of certain guardrails. Otherwise, you unsettle. And so when he would go outside those guardrails, and I think of the, the two big ones for me, Judge Curiel, the Access Hollywood, there were others for others. The, uh, my friends in the military, and I have many, were undone by the, the Captain Khan, the parents. Uh, uh, I did not, I understood that. As a civilian who have often done, I do a, a semi-annual, twice a year, the Semper Fi Fund, we give them the whole show to raise money for uh, wounded and injured Marines and other members of the, of the uh, and I always get ranks wrong. I always get the protocol. I'm just a civilian. I'm a dummy. And so I, and they forgive me. So I understand his not understanding the protocol of how one deals with a gold star family because it may be the hardest interview to do is a gold star family, spouse, child, parent, hardest interview to do. So he screwed that up. I kind of said, okay, I get that. Didn't get the McCain thing at all. You know, didn't get that. Uh, Get into a fight with Megyn Kelly is just kind of revert to your ordinary mode, but it was early. But the learning stopped when he won. And that was probably the worst thing to happen to him was not have to contest the convention or he would have stayed inside the guardrails. And then uh, overconfidence, he thought he'd get the Bernie people. But mostly 
that developer thing I talked about earlier, it used to be if you're building a building, get as much attention to that building as possible, regardless of what you do, and it doesn't work in politics. It's astonishing. Uh, you know, but you know a lot about building audiences. What does it take to build a significant audience in today's media landscape? Yeah, at bats, uh, I'm in awe of Mr. Schieffer here because his career, what year did it begin, Bob? Uh, well, I came to CBS in 1969, but I'd been a newspaper reporter before that. I've, I've probably been doing this uh, more than 50 years. Okay, so I started in 1989, <laughs> and at bats matter. And so if you're going to build Bob's a brand. Bob's been hitting 400 for yeah, a long I know. Time. It's remarkable. I said, they said, would you like to come down and do an interview with Bob Schieffer? I said, I'll get the cab and I'll drive over. Um, the, the fact is that you get better. The, the classic cliche is now 10,000 reps. If you do something 10,000 times, you're, you're adequate at it 20,000 times. So I think I've done 25,000 interviews. Talk radio in 1989 to 92. PBS for 10 years of nightly news in L.A. Uh, back to syndicated radio in July of 2000 into television with PBS uh, at a national level, then over to the networks doing commentary for CNN for a while. Now I'm with NBC and MSNBC, and my daily radio show is three hours a day, uh, four to five interviews a day, and that just adds up so that you're able to, right now I'm answering questions, but normally I ask questions, and so building a brand in broadcasting and building a brand in everything and building an audience means repetition. Do the same thing over and over again, every day and they will find you. When Face the Nation was the highest rated show on the weekends, it's because, Bob, you'd been doing it for however long, many years you started in 1996? Well, yeah, 1996? 20 something. Yeah, 20 years. Hey, it's Sunday morning, Face the Nation. And now the new guys, and I've been on all of them now, uh, they're all doing, the, the transition has been seamless and good for broadcasting, that we have a new generation of Sunday morning hosts who will have to spend years doing the same thing so that they can come to rely on a style and a delivery of a product, and I hope it never goes away. It's an American institution. We invented the Sunday show. You invented the Sunday show. I just watched it when I was uh, uh, growing up as a journalist. And that delivery, we, when we say a Sunday show, everybody knows what it means. Uh, it's got a brand, whether it's, uh, it's Bob Schieffer on Face the Nation or, or Tim Russert on Meet the Press or The New Generation. Everybody knows what it means, and they go there. George Stephanopoulos on ABC, Chuck, Jake, John. And that's a great institution, repetition, 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 at, at a good level of quality. Well, there's also a debate today about how to best present news and information in the digital age. Um, some think short, bite-sized content is all that we have ex uh, attention for. You're talking about doing three, four hours of radio a day. I think Americans have plenty of time for long-form news and other content when it's great content. Um, I'd be interested to know what you think about that. Uh, I'm, I'm like American energy policy, all of the above. And what I do is I have 15 shows a day, five segments an hour, three hours a day, and I treat it. Today, I had David Axelrod on for two segments, uh, which was 13 minutes and five minutes, so a total of 18 minutes. We post the 18 minutes as one audio block, so it's available on the radio for the drive-in and two audiences, one in 18, and then the Trump thing will be repurposed into five hours. I happen to believe that the average workout time, I have no science behind this, the average workout time is 35 to 45 minutes based upon lunch. So I think the ideal podcast is 35 to 40 minutes so that people can get in, get their clothes on, get on a Stairmaster, work out and listen to a podcast, get off and be done. That's my view. Well, that's what we do. <laughs> is that what you shoot for, 40 minutes? Yeah. I didn't that's, know that. That's what, and, and for that very reason. That's what uh, I that believe. It's yep. is, is people's workout time. 
I want to get back to asking you, because one of the one of the questions I'm asked over and over and over this year is how did it come down to these two? How did we? And is that uh, what does that say about our whole electoral infrastructure? That people are saying, you know, we wound up with two people that a majority of the uh, uh, in every sur- survey suggests that people don't like them. And, and furthermore, don't trust them. Uh, what do you think? Uh, how did we come to be where we are right now? Let me do Secretary Clinton first. And full disclosure, Mark Guerin, who is Bill Clinton's deputy chief of staff and head of the Peace Corps, is my closest friend in the world. Dan Poneman, who is President Obama's deputy energy secretary, was the other one. Three Harvard roommates. So I know a lot about Democrats. Secretary Clinton is the George H.W. Bush of the Democratic Party. She is inheriting a third term by virtue of her having been there through most of the first two terms and having been around. I think her seventh run for the presidency in one capacity or another. This is her second as leader of the ticket. So she's been around runs for the presidency forever and experience matters there too. And if she gets to the White House, she's not going to do anything stupid. She'll do a lot of things I disagree with, but she's not going to make any major errors. Some errors may follow her. Some past misjudgments may follow her into her presidency. But she was the natural heir of the Democratic coalition. There was nobody else. And Senator Sanders, who walked into the middle of the populist moment, was the beneficiary. But she's been the inevitable, the inevitable nominee, I think, since she decided to run. On the Republican side, they have to rewrite the rules. I may write a book about this. You cannot let people onto the debate stage who do not have 5% in the popular polls. Now, Donald Trump would still have made it onto the debate stage. I don't know that he would have survived um, 12 debates with four or five people. The last debate in which I participated in the last debate in the cycle was in Miami, four people on the stage. It was his worst debate. He had to participate for the most in that debate. When you had 9, 10, 11 people on the stage, you have to perform for seven or eight minutes. And so... While you stand there the whole time, you're not actually on. In the three debates with Secretary Clinton, he's been on 40 of the, of the 90 minutes or 45 of the 95 minutes. He doesn't last well uh, because his delivery is staccato. It's very effective to a large crowd. It doesn't last well. His policy uh, depth on, on matters of international affairs is just being learned. You know, I don't know how to build a skyscraper. You want to ask me about his best testimony, by the way, if you ever go back and listen, is when he testified on the UN remodeling before a subcommittee of the Senate, he was brilliant because he knows developing. And he said, this UN remodel is a nightmare. And he started running through it. I was laughing. I was informed. I was entertained. He's a developer. He's a builder. He knows this stuff. Talked to him about Hamas and Hezbollah, and he told me up front on the radio show, I don't know the difference. It doesn't matter. I'll learn on the first day in the office. Well, no, you really don't learn on the first day in the office. And, and so how did it happen? The Republican Party in 2012 allowed, and God bless Herman Cain, and God bless Michelle Bachman, they had no more business being on the debate stage than I did. And if you recall, even before that, Alan Keyes, who I've known since 1974, was on the debate stage with John McCain and George W. Bush because people at the RNC were afraid to pull the trigger and say, no, you're not legit. You're not going to be in the finals. And And this would not have affected Mr. Trump, but it would have kept out a number of people who hadn't reached 5%. And that would have saved time and focused journalistic energy. Part two of my critique, I have to ask my friend Mike Murphy about this. I have to ask my friends on Team Rubio. These Howard Stern tapes are not secret. 
every minute of every one of my audio broadcasts are out there. Jeb's team had $120 million. You can't hire an opposition research firm. Ted Cruz's team had $75 million. Very smart people. You can't hire an oppo firm. How can you not find the Howard Stern tapes? The answer is they expected him to implode. And the, the ongoing enduring lesson of this campaign is nobody takes themselves out of the game. If you're going to take somebody out, you have to do it. And that's, uh, someone said, the dirty little secret of politics that isn't a secret is that everybody does it, and the best ones do it without fingerprints. And nobody did it to Donald Trump. Do you think, uh, do you think that uh, Jeb Bush just waited too long uh, to declare he, you know, he kept, you know, he kept uh, going out and making speeches. He was trying to raise this money for his uh, for his super PAC. And finally, uh, by that time, Trump, I think the great, uh, you know, secret to Trump's success was he realized what I think is now obvious, as Sherlock Holmes once said, most things are obvious in retrospect. But he... While the rest of them were out there doing these old-fashioned kinds of things, he just made himself available to, to television. And, and he realized if you make yourself available to a certain number of television broadcasts, you're going to get on some of them. And he did. And I don't think he got a free pass. I think uh, some of the times that uh, sometimes he, you know, people went easy on him just to get him. But I think he was challenged, but he was just getting all this exposure while the others were doing all these old-fashioned things like uh, like raising money. That's exactly 100% correct, and I share the analysis. The era of flooding the zone of imagery matters a great deal. Donald Trump would do my show about once a month for half an hour, which is a lot of time. I had to chase the other uh, guys, not Carly. Carly would come on often because she was looking for exposure. Governor Bush is by far the best-informed of those candidates who began. He knows everything. And in an intimate setting, and you know this, in a broadcast world, radio is the most intimate setting. Uh, in television, there are more people around. Right now we have 10 people around. Uh, no lights, no one in our ears, no plugs, just three microphones. It's very intimate, you talk to them. Uh, Governor Bush came to my studio in California and sat down, said so Marco Rubio. A lot of people have been in that. Very intimate setting. Jeb Bush knows everything. He just does. He failed to disclose that to the American people effectively. <laughs> he hid that by hiding himself because I, I believe, again, his advisor said, this is yours. It's locked away. Uh, here's the old playbook from 2008. Here's the playbook from 2004, the playbook from 2000. And what has changed is that hunger for information about politics is endless. Podcasts like this have audiences. People love the game as much as they love baseball. And they want to know inside baseball. Uh, they want sabermetrics. And so the more you can give them, the more they want. And so cable changed everything. Ailes figured that out. And Donald Trump came out and he was, a, as I said many times, he's the best interview in America. And I, I reserved the domain name trumpthemusical.com because I think he is a musical. <laughs> uh, that's what he is. He's a showman. It, it's, it really is extraordinary. Um, and he probably will have a Trump musical. Now, he won't have the domain name unless he drills a deal with me. So. Hey, you were, you were there first. <laughs> I, I did a deal on the radio with him, Andrew, on the first interview. I said, I reserved this. I said, how about $3 million? He said, that's fair. That's fair. And so I think I've got him convicted. I already that's not a bad right. deal. No, not a bad deal. That's Cost not a bad deal for, bucks, right? yeah, for either one of you. Why do you think, though, that um, radio is so popular and uh, 
podcasts are so popular. It's relatively low tech compared to you know everything we have available now. But but podcasts are more popular than ever. Radio is more popular than ever. Right here, I'm holding up my iPhone. Yeah, and uh, it goes with me everywhere. Yeah, and I carry around books on tape. My favorite podcast. It's instantly accessible to me. I was on Southwest Airline coming back from Vegas to Bait yesterday for four and a half hours. We were an hour late leaving. I'm able to upload, click in, and learn, listen, entertainment. Some people just listen to music. I mean, I, I think that's dull. And so podcasting is exploding because now quality rises to the top. You can listen to some kids. And, and I love kids in journalism. Um, but I, nobody cared what I thought till I was 35. And then they didn't care much. Uh, and, and so I, I listen to them like someone like Robert Koss of the Washington Post who works all the time. He works harder than anybody I know. I listen to Robert, Tim Alberta with National Review. Uh, you know, Mike Allen is peripatetic and everywhere. I listen to the hardworking people regardless of age, but I don't listen to the opiners, opine. I'll listen to young reporters, but opiners, I want to know that you've been in the room a few times before I listen to opine. So I'm glad you guys are doing this because I think it's 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 one of those things that will now go on my playlist. Let me, well, let me just ask you this. <clears throat> one of the questions we're trying to <clears throat> answer uh, in these podcasts is uh, – we have all this information. You know, we're, we're bombarded with information from all sides, more information than any humans in the history of the world have had access to. But are we more informed or are we simply overwhelmed with so much information we can't process it? We're dividing into two groups, those who are uh, selective in their editorial function and understand what is worth listening to and those who don't know how to deal with the bombardment. Sadly, the latter group is susceptible to cancer quackery, to conspiracy theories. If you're, if you're smart and you're interested and you're on the internet, you can land on anything. Uh, you, and, and you can end up completely misinformed about something. And therefore, the curating of information, the editorial function, is going to be very important to, to drive. And I think, uh, and I'm not shining you on, Bob, uh, people who've been there and done that, doing podcasting, you and Axelrod and a few others are starting this, that bring a brand of experience are going to bring an audience as soon as they find about it because they're going to want to be able to rely. And America is aging well. I like to point that out. It's the biggest demographic change. We're getting older, we're getting older, but not the way my parents got older, who were born in 1923. They became infirm as opposed to well. They became less mobile as opposed to more mobile. They became more concerned about money as opposed to, to more confident of their asset base. And as America ages, they're not just going to play golf. They're going to want to stay smart, and they're going to be, you know, the kids don't think we use these devices. And I'm 60 years old, and I'm pretty nimble on this stuff because it takes about five minutes to learn it. I'm not, I'm not not learning anymore. So I think the market is enormous for people, even to come out of retirement, people we haven't heard from in 15 or 20 years. And I, and I don't mean to say that Al Hunt hasn't been heard from in 15 or 20 years, but I ran into him in Cleveland at the convention. Al Hunt knows everything. I mean, he just knows everything about politics. And I sat in the basement of the Bloomberg with David Eisenhower, uh, President Eisenhower's son, and my first employer right before I went to work for Nixon. I was working on a book with David Eisenhower at war. And we sat down, we talked for an hour. And I thought, Al Hunt, you just have to start doing this because he knows everything. Let's talk about niche media. You know, I believe following this election, we're going to see media on both the far right and the far left thriving in terms of putting up some pretty big numbers of viewers uh, and reaching a broader audience. What do you think about that? I do if it doesn't cost money. People like free. People like free a lot. And the, one of the reasons I don't think terrestrial radio 
combined with satellite radio now will ever go away is it's free. And some people will never pay for radio because they've been getting it free since WDKDK uh, went on the air in Pittsburgh in 1927. And so they're not going to start paying for radio shows except a, a small number. Glenn Beck, uh, the experiment that was, that remains, Mercury Broadcasting in the Glenn Beck Empire uh, was subscription-based and lasted for a while. But the moment he tried to build that to a technology-heavy industry like television, uh, the numbers don't pencil unless you attract advertising. Advertising does not want to be near white-hot controversy. As my friends in, in various networks have said, I'm the most acceptable, I'm the most conservative but yet acceptable voice on the radio because <laughs> I'm not crazy. And so that's why I get all the invitations on the TV. There's a no-buy list in, in radio. You know, there, there's, there's some companies that will not buy some radio shows because they don't want to lose audiences. You've got to stay off the no-buy list. So as people go into niche, they're going to want brand as well if they want advertisers, or those advertisers will not touch you. So you don't think Trump could start his own network and go far to the right with the network and go to the right of where Fox News has been, to the right of where everybody, maybe even where Breitbart's been, and sell subscriptions or sell ads or monetize it some way? You can monetize a subscription-based network as Glenn did. Uh, there's a limit to that. Um, and I do not believe you can go to the, to the right of Breitbart and exist. I don't know that Breitbart—I haven't seen Breitbart's financials. Andrew was a very close friend of mine. His last interview was on my radio show. When he spoke at the CPAC, he declared me to be the public intellectually most respected. So I knew Andrew pretty doggone well. This Breitbart is not that Breitbart. Uh, very, very different. And uh, there are radio shows and other formats out there which are to the right of Breitbart, which survive on— preppers and uh, marginal advertising, they can't grow. You can't grow beyond on that advertising base. And, and everything's a bell curve. 330 million Americans. The far 1% is 3 million. The far left is 3 million. Those 3 million people have some money. But if you're going to be big, if you're going to be CBS and be Tiffany, if you're going to be NBC or ABC, or you're even going to be a, net, a cable network like CNN or ESPN, You've got to pay for infrastructure with the advertising, with the people who are selling soap. So these guys, these guys stay niche. I mean, young, Tur young Turks even. Very. It, it's it's. Oh, capped. I know the young Turks. Uh, yeah, it's very niche. Capped where it is. Yep. Not going to grow. Only if the population grows. The you know the population growth, on the on the extreme is always going to be the extreme. It's always going to. There's a parabola in everything. The bell curve applies to everything, and most everything is within that eighty percent, and that's where America sells. And where America sells, where the free market sells, is where you make money. Where you make money is where you build. So what do you think uh, is the future of uh, traditional uh, media, uh, especially newspapers? Uh, the Washington Post, they figured out they have a plan. They have a strategy, and they're doing very well. The New York Times is still the New York Times. Uh, but what I worry about are the medium-level newspapers around the country. I mean, I, what I'm worried about is if, if we don't find some entity that uh, does what we expect of local newspapers, and that is to keep an eye on local government, I think we're, we're in big trouble in this country. That is in trouble. I think there are a lot of zombie newspapers that are walking around dead. Uh, Orange County Register from my home county is one of them, walking around dead, knocking on bankruptcy's door. Uh, it was... 30 years ago that the newspaper masthead was the brand, the Post, the Times, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, the bigs, 
and and here in town, the Washington Star for a while, and and to a lesser extent, the Washington Times. Then the byline became the brand in the era of blogging, which lasted for ten years, where Hugh Hewitt or Glenn Reynolds or somebody else had a powerline blog, blogger of the year. The uh, individual columnist George Will, the byline became the brand. Well, now what's going to happen is the masthead plus the byline. So I know who the New York Times is. It's Michael Shear. It's Maureen Dowd. It's it's Nicholas Kristof. It's it's wonderful people like John Fisher Burns, the world's greatest foreign correspondent ever, who's now retired. But I do a podcast with John Fisher Burns tomorrow. The Washington Post has assembled the murderer's row of political reporters. I mean, every day I can have you know, Dan Balls is their senior statesman, but there it is so deep. Steve Ginsburg manages that bullpen uh, the way that Mickey Calloway runs the Indians and Tito Francota runs the Indians. They're terrific. And Politico and Jim Vandehei is going to start a new one. The byline with a bunch of brands is the future model, but the medium-sized newspaper is doomed. A micro-coverage that is supported by local um, restaurants, local purveyors of goods, local catering services, local bars, local auto dealerships, like the radio station, becomes good. There's actually a healthy future for local radio. That's why every one of my stations has a local show. In Washington, I'm on AM 1260. They don't have a syndicated lo- They don't have a local show. I'm up against my very good friend, Larry O'Connor and WMAL. If you're listening to this, Larry, retire. Uh, but in any event, I, 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 it's probably like the Sunday show deal with you guys. You're constantly competing. But I... I think that the medium-sized market newspaper is in a world of hurt. So who takes its place? Disaggregation. I read in the morning, in order, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and occasionally I will make it. I start with the Times of London to see what happened in Europe because they have a little bit head on the news cycle than we do. And then when I, if I can get to it, the LA Times. I don't read any local newspapers, and I go in search of my branded, here, what's Mike Allen saying today? What's over here? And I go looking for my branded stuff, and then I do my show, and people are driving in on the basis of those sound clips. Grabian exists as a service to bring in sound clips that produces sound for my producer, and we have a show. And we can do that in about an hour and a half of prep before we go on the air at 6 a.m. Nothing involves a medium-sized newspaper. I just think they're, they're dinosaurs in the La Brea tar pit. They're in the saber-toothed tigers of the, of the last age. Are you a fan of newsletters? Um, I'm a fan of bylines. I get Jonah Goldberg's. Every Friday, because I like to laugh. Uh, I get Jim Garrity's every day, because I, I read Playbook from Politico. So yes, I am. I have to know the brand. I have to believe that the person is working their rear end off, because there's a lot of, you know, I don't need any more opinion. I got so much opinion. Give me some facts. Tell me what the, the, the inside polling is in the Richard Burr race in North Carolina. What's he really thinking? And that's the old hotline. And people don't even remember hotline. Cost $4,000 a year. It went at $4,000 a year with a lot of money. And I paid for it because to do a radio show in the morning in 1989, you needed hotline. It was the only buddy that gave you the juice. And not surprisingly, Chuck Todd was a hotline editor and he knew stuff. Tell our listeners what the hotline was. I'm not sure everybody knows okay, what Okay, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, facts not in evidence, as we lawyers like to say. Hotline was a daily delivered, early in the morning, compendium of everything that happened in politics and to a little extent national affairs. I'm sure Bob read it every morning as Oh, well. my daughter, my younger daughter worked there. Oh, that, I didn't know that. That oh, was her first job out of college when she graduated from Penn. What a great first job. And so, you know, you learn. It's like baseball. You learn verticals. 
very well. Now they call them verticals and everyone thinks it's a new term. Well, hotline was the first vertical, but they faxed it to you. So this thing was faxed and it was a big stack and you'd have to make Xerox copies to pass out all throughout the newsroom. And if you didn't read it, you didn't know what was going on. You didn't know what was going on. And the equivalent on Friday was the Friday Follies at the White House. Uh, They took every political cartoon in America. And Friday afternoon, about 4 o'clock, the Friday Follies was delivered to, this is the Reagan White House, 8586. And uh, the Chief Justice and I are sharing an office. And we we wait. Even if you wanted to go home on Friday, wait for the Friday Follies. Because you could read every kind of comic book. Well, you could. I think this is the point where most people have finished their workout. They're getting ready to go take a shower and go back to work. Maybe we got them five extra minutes today, huh? We got them. And uh, <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed uh, just chatting with you. This has really been a lot of fun. For Andrew Schwartz, this is Bob Schieffer. But that's not all, Bob. At the top of this podcast, we gave you just a tease of the great music from my friend Aaron Neville's new record, Apache. Let's hear some more from Aaron Neville. I just know this record's going to win a Grammy.
the horizon was burning in the sky. You never know what's coming. It's turning on a dime. Oh, the world will keep on running. It's spending all the time. You gotta keep on moving. Or you'll be on the other side. And I know where life will take us. Is it waiting just to break us? When we go on faith alone, sometimes it's hard to believe what's going on. Gotta keep moving on. If you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Visit us at csis.org and check out the Schieffer College of Communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu.